From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to the Thursday edition of Open Line here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Uh, delighted to be joined by our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you, Padre? Just fine, thank you. Very glad. Very glad of that. We're going to open up the phone lines here, and here's that phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-EWTN. 3986. If you're calling from outside North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. That's a special number just for you folks outside of North America. 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. Uh, send it to openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Milady in the subject line or Thursday in the subject line. Today, Father, you're going to be talking about faith and reason and St. Justin Martyr, right? Right. Very good. Today's the feast of St. Justin Martyr, and he was uh, lived in the early church. They say he was born around 100, and he was born in Samaria. And at a certain point, and he began to search for truth. And uh, he supposedly, in his search for truth, first went to various types of Greek philosophy, which were prevalent at his time. And then he met an old man, the story goes. He actually says this in one of his uh, dialogues. A mysterious figure he met on the seashore initially that led him into a crisis by showing him that it is impossible for a human being to satisfy his desires for the divine solely with his own forces. He then pointed out to him the ancient prophets as people to whom to turn in order to find the way to God and true philosophy and in taking his leave he prayed for him that the light of faith, light of truth, would shine on him and he would find the truth. He was led by this to both the Hebrew scriptures and to Greek philosophy. And it's interesting in Pope Benedict's uh, reflection on St. Justin, he points out that the early church did not reject Greek philosophy as such, nor did it reject the Hebrew scriptures, because in both of them it found a seed of truth, or seeds of truth. And this expression, seeds of truth, is also used in the Second Vatican Council for aspects of the truth we can find in religion. However, it did reject what it considered to be the empty displays of paganism, and St. Justin Martyr, who eventually was led by both Greek philosophy and the Hebrew scriptures to the Christian faith, 
founded a school in Rome where, free of charge, he initiated students into Christianity. He considered it the true philosophy because in it he found not only truth, but the art of living virtuously. And because he found the art of living virtuously there, and because they rejected paganism, even though he dedicated one of his works to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, when it came up to butting heads against the official pagan Roman religion, he uh, was beheaded because he refused to worship idols. Mm. So John Paul II says this about him. He is a pioneer of positive engagement with philosophical thinking, albeit with cautious discernment. Although he continued to hold Greek philosophy in high esteem after his conversion, Justin claimed with power and clarity that he had found in Christianity the only sure and profitable philosophy. And in fact, uh, John Paul II quotes that only sure and profitable philosophy in his book, uh, his encyclical on faith and reason. Now, as a Dominican, of course, I love the idea of faith and reason being able to be reconciled with each other. Mm. But address the old problem of whether Athens can meet Jerusalem or not. And the idea would be, and Justin Martyr exemplifies this greatly, that whatever is true in whether it's discovered through reason alone or through faith, because the Hebrew scriptures, after all, are faith, that whatever is true eventually has to lead you to the ultimate truth. Now, by reason we can know the ultimate truth exists. In fact, according to Aristotle, that's why everybody sought uh, philosophy, truth. Why? They wondered at the causes of the world. And they were led little by little over centuries, the most intelligent men, to finally discern that it was due to one thing. They didn't know if the one thing was personal or not, but by further examination, they discovered that it was a person of what we call God. However, they only knew of its existence. The Hebrew scriptures are the same. They teach us that this being exists who is personal, but they don't give us the final solution. And the final solution, strangely enough, to the quest of human truth, and this is why in the readings for Mass we read this today, is the folly of the cross. <laughs> wow, yeah. And so the all the strains of human truth meet, basically, in the folly of the cross, which then, of course, leads us eventually to heaven. When Pope Benedict reflects on this, because he does this in one of his Wednesday audience discourses, he says, in a time like ours, marked by relativism, in the discussion on values and religion, and as well as interreligious dialogue where we do find seeds of truth in other faiths. This is a lesson that should not be forgotten. And it shows you that bad philosophy is one of the reasons most people give up Christianity. Mm, wow. Uh, Luther, as you know, uh, rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation and other things 
because he had bad philosophy. He was a nominalist. He didn't believe that universal ideas were real. And the Enlightenment, which we've all been living with for the last 200 years, uh, I've been reading um, a history of the German army in the last 200 or 300 years. Uh-huh. I mean, think of what Enlightenment has led us to. Uh. It's led us to millions of people being killed in wars, more than any other in, in human history. The bloodbath of the 20th century with mass extermination of ethnic groups, like in Cambodia, uh, the whole thing. And uh, it's just not what truth should lead us to. And what St. Justin Martyr, even in the early days of Christianity, was an example for. So he demonstrates to us, even at the foundation of the church, that philosophy itself is not inimical to religion, and true philosophy could lead us to the need for further knowledge, mm -hmm. which is the religion based on faith. Also, he had a great respect for the Hebrew scriptures, and he also understood that those things could only be finally fulfilled in the light of the gospel itself, which, of course leads us eventually to heaven. Heaven is what reason leads us to as the final solution to the world. When Pope Benedict examines Justin, he ends his reflections by saying, we should use the last words of the mysterious old man he met on the seashore, which are, pray that above all things the gates of light may be opened to you. For these things cannot be perceived or understood by all, but only by the man to whom God and his Christ have imparted wisdom. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I, you know, as you were saying all that, uh, especially about the word enlightenment, you would think, I mean, this is giving the, the term enlightenment a bad name, isn't it? Because you would... Well, you, would, you know why they call it enlightenment? Why is because that? Because it was... Because it was the answer to the darkness of the Middle Ages, which was governed by faith in the church. Mm. And so man had finally discovered that he could solve all the problems through human reason and technology. And boy, did they get their answer to that. Sure did. I, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I recently saw a picture that said, uh, you know, were the Dark Ages really all that dark? And it and, and showed all these gorgeous cathedrals and churches yes. that were just spectacular. Most of the great agricultural inventions, like the horse collar, wow. the water mill, all occurred during the Dark Ages. A lot more straight ahead on this edition of Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Call now, 833-288-EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we'd love to talk with you today. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. That phone number one more once, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986. Uh, before we get to that first call, which we will in just a second here, let me tell you about one of our other EWTN radio networks you may not be familiar with, and it's called EWTN Radio Essentials, where you can hear the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every two hours 
8 a.m. Eastern, 10 o'clock, noon, 2 p.m., all the way up to midnight, plus rosaries, chaplets, Stations of the Cross, and other devotionals every hour. Check out EWTN Radio Essentials. It's on the EWTN app, an absolutely free download. Also, by going to EWTNRadio.net, EWTNRadio.net, you can listen to it right there. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's begin with Carrie in Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria Radio. Carrie, what's on your mind today? Oh, yes. Uh, hello, uh, Father. I was wondering, groups like the Friends, the Society of Quakers, uh, the Salvation Army and Christian Science people, I don't think they baptized, and I was wondering, are they Christians? Then you have the Mormons, Latter-day Saints, they do baptize, but I think it's the wrong formula. So all these groups I mentioned, the Mormons, Latter-day Saints, Quakers, Friends, Salvation Army, Christian Scientists, are they not or semi-Christian, please? Uh, well, I'm not too familiar with the Salvation Army. I had the impression that they were Protestants who basically did uh, social uh, works. But the Mormons are definitely not Christian because they don't believe in the Trinity or Christ is divine, what, uh, whether they practice a form of baptism or not. And the Quakers are the ultimate Protestant sect, you know, because Luther's great problem was with sacramentality. It wasn't so much the papacy and uh, he didn't believe physical rituals could communicate grace. And so even Lutheran baptism, I mean, we recognize it as valid because it's done in the name of the Trinity. But even the merit of Lutheran baptism for them is questionable because, remember, they don't believe baptism in itself gives you grace, baptism by water. Uh, they believe you have to have a further profession when you get older, at least of babies, you know, they, when you get older and you can actually express your faith, that's what saves you. So it's very diffident and unclear there. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I know the Mormons are not considered to be uh, Christian. And uh, the, the Quakers, I, I don't really know. Uh, they certainly don't practice baptism by water because they don't have any rituals. Remember, they have no music, no art, no clergy. Uh, God and the soul just prophesy with each other. And I'm not really sure what place Christ has in it all either. Mm. Um, James Naylor, who was the founda founder of the Quakers, when he used to travel from town to town in England, all the populace would come out and throw their coats before him and cry, Hosanna to the son of David because grace made him the same, equal to Christ, the same as Christ. Wow. So I seriously doubt that they would be considered Christian either. But I don't know what the Vatican's position is on that. All right. But, uh, okay. Anyway, Care, yeah. And remember, they don't even have a Sabbath. They have a meeting day. Mm. They don't have a church. They have a meeting house. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, there, there was a great protest against anything sacramental, any any ritual of any kind or any physical manifestation of God. Fascinating. Carrie, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, 833-288-3986. It is Open Line Thursday here on EWTN. Let's go to David now, a first-time caller from Washington, watching us on YouTube today. David, what's on your mind today, sir? 
Hi, uh, I went to confession and I got a, I got to read a psalm. I was ascribed a psalm to read, so I got home and I opened up my my Bible and I read. It's the strangest psalm. It's got nothing to do with my confession. So I I went online and looked up the psalms there, and they had a, a national or an NIV version, which made more sense. It was about the psalm of David and Bathsheba with Nathan the prophet. So I, I guess I'm, you I mean have mercy my own Bible. And it's a Dewey Reams Bible. Uh-huh. And, the, and so the psalm numbers are different. Yes, there's two enumerations of the Psalms, yeah. Um, I forget why, but up to, I think, to 20, I think they're the same. And then they divide one or something, and so you'll have Psalm 5051. And the Psalm he probably gave you to read was the Miserere. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness and your compassion, blot mm. out my offense. Oh, wash me more and more from my guilt. I would imagine it would be that psalm, but uh, okay, yeah, um, because the numerations are different. Yeah, there you go, uh, David. Thank you so much for your call. Here's a question from Mark. Uh, Mark says, "I have a Christian friend who is into a lot of different speakers who promote the prosperity gospel, health and wealth. I guess uh, <laughs> she has been feeling empty with it. How can I gently give her somewhere to start toward truth?" <laughs> Well, yeah. first of all, you could have her read Christ's words. I mean, I will not get up, you know. Christ doesn't promise to make us happy in no. this life. No. And uh, even the fundamentalist preachers I know, I know one in particular, he's a Puerto Rican from Florida, mm -hmm. and he's death on the prosperity gospel. Ah. He says these people are false preachers. You know, once the evangel evangelicals get going on each other, boy, are they tough. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. now the prosperity gospel is, oh, gosh, I, I, I used to watch Trinity Broadcasting when I go to Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, that's the fundamentalist equivalent of EWTN. Mm. And they remember they had this one guy on from this church in Ohio, and he said, he actually said, your prayer is only as effective as your giving. Mm. And I thought, wow. boy, if a Catholic priest ever said that, he'd be shot yeah. by the congregation. Yeah. And then when you're successful, of course, you have to give some to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, so, you know, they have all these kind of, a bunch of these guys have these private jets and mansions and diamond rings and all that stuff, you know, and... Father, I remember uh, before we moved to Alabama, our family lived in Minnesota for a time, and the cable system where we lived uh, did not carry EWTN 24 hours a day. They carried it three hours a day, and uh, it was from 6 to 9 p.m. So it would end with the rosary, and then at 9 p.m., that, cha that same channel would switch over to Trinity, and so the contrast was just absolutely amazing. Oh, I can imagine. So, you know, quiet, and here's a flute playing, and then all of a sudden, everybody's screaming at you. It was like, 
Wow, what just happened? It was crazy. Yeah, I can imagine. It is uh, Open Line <laughs> Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Totally forgot about that. Here on EWTN, we'll get back to the phones in just a moment. Matthew says, how can I respond to questions within my family about the Protestant view of once saved, always saved? Well, it depends on what authorities they'll accept. Mm. Uh, Christ does say many are called, but few are chosen. Now, of course, he doesn't mean a small number necessarily. That's a Semiticism. Uh, the best way to translate that is many are called, but less are chosen. Mm. So that means there could be one person. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. But Christ himself talks about, uh, like at the judgment, the sheep are separated from the goats, and it's based on... on um, uh, your deeds, your works. Uh-huh. However, they have they have an answer for that. Uh, I once asked another fundamentalist friend of mine. I said, uh, "I don't get it. You say there's no works necessary for salvation at all. That's right, only faith." And I said, "Well, uh, what about Matthew 25? I was hungry, you gave me to eat. I was, aren't those works?" And so his response was, "Well, that's not for Christians." What? No, that's only for pagans. Oh Christians my. have a, Christians have the white throne of judgment, and it doesn't matter what they do as long as they accept Jesus as their personal savior, they'll be saved. Hmm. So I thought, well, it's it's a novel solution, that's for sure. Well, I my response is, where the heck do you find that in the Bible anyway? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. But uh, yeah. Um, the, the best response is to have them uh, read, um, well, St. Paul says salvation, justification begins with faith, but he doesn't say it ends with faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Luther who added only faith. So uh, faith was completed by charity, by works. Okay. Um, but not works... You know, our works don't bind God, obviously, in in justice. Sure. But the fact is that if you've got the Holy Spirit in your soul, we're just celebrating Pentecost, it should lead you to do the works of God. And I I really don't think any really self-respecting Protestant Christian would deny that. Uh, But it doesn't fit into their system very well. Mm. That's the thing. Okay. Very good. Open line Thursday with Father Brian. One more question here before we go to break. This is from Peter. Should a family raise their kids in the faith or let the kids decide for themselves? The family should raise the children in the faith. Faith is so important and parents' involvement in it is so important. And it's like saying, should I let my kids decide what food they're going to eat for themselves? So not give them healthy diets. Or should I just give them healthy diets and let them come to appreciate it later? Yeah, uh, You can't let children decide these things for themselves. And who knows what the final thing will be, plus the fact that salvation is so important that infant baptism was a practice from the early days of the church. Uh, and so we need uh, the grace of our in childhood, too, when we're being raised. Yes, indeed. Hey, Peter, thank you so much uh, for your email. By the way, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, you can do that whenever you wish at, here's the address, 
openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. And if you want Father Brian to tackle that particular question of yours, then then in the subject line, be sure you put either Thursday or Father Brian or Father Milady to make sure that we match up uh, the right question to uh, the right host. Again, that address, openline at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll get back to the phones. We'd love to hear from you today. And if you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. Our number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Lines are open right now for Father Brian Milady. If you have a question for him, uh, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, St. Peter the Apostle Church in Joplin, Missouri, celebrating their eighth year with us. Congratulations to Father Brian Strauss and everybody at KFSS in Joplin, Missouri, from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Let's continue with uh, Gerald in New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Gerald, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, honestly, like I said a little bit earlier, I was coming out of a dark place and just... uh... Yeah, turn your radio down, Gerald, if you would, please. Oh, my deep apologies, yes, sir. Just um, just kind of not much of a question, but just like I just came out of a dark place lately, and uh-huh. it's okay to breathe. And just for everybody, it's okay, even when it's raining and it's cloudy. The sun is still shining behind those clouds, and it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Simple as that. That's all. Thank you, Gerald. Any thoughts, there, Father? It's always darkest before the dawn. Yes, yes. And life, I I don't understand all these people today committing suicide because life is not that final. The only thing that's final about it is death and heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, things can go up and things can go down and you need to just hang on here. Sometimes are tough. Sometimes it is tough to hang on. Uh, but, you know, God has the final say in all this, and that final chapter right. has not uh, been revealed to us yet. No, no. And, and uh, like I say, uh, life's mutable. So. In, indeed. Thank you so much, uh, Gerald, uh, for your call today from uh, Domestic Church Media Land there in New Jersey. Here's a question now from Nora, Father. Nora says, if God is unchanging... How can we reconcile that with the Incarnation? How can we reconcile that with the Incarnation, which seems like a change to me? Okay, well, I know the answer to this one, fortunately. Okay. Uh, The theological explanation for the Incarnation in relationship to the unchangeability of God is that God doesn't change one iota. What changes is the world. And the earth... its relationship to God is that we're all called to be one in God with God in nature. But the incarnation is a miracle 
in which nature is called to be one with God in person. And that's like an incredible thing. Only Christ is the one who experiences it, not Mary, not anybody else. Mm -hmm. All the others experience sanctifying grace. Christ experiences the unique grace of the hypostatic union, which is a union in person. And this is something that is so mysterious that you, you could meditate on it your whole life and still not understand it fully. When St. Thomas talks about the incarnation and the Summa, he has like 40 questions. But he always, he never asks, is this proved? He asks if it's fitting. Mm. And the word fitting there, the Latin word is convenience, convenient, means only there's more intelligibility that we can see in this particular decision of God is this choice of God than in any other choice we can consider. But it's not a proof. It's one of the reasons why you can doubt the incarnation uh, and, and, uh, and, and at the same time believe in it because it's, it's not a truth, uh, a proof. Nobody can prove the incarnation. That's why when I wrote the book for EWTN, Originally, they wanted me to uh, talk of something about like capturing Christ. They said, "I'm sorry, nobody captures Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're captivated by Him, but we don't. We don't. We can't fit Him into our categories in our mind because mm -hmm. they're all limited. Mm -hmm. yeah. But the human nature is united by a new relation between the world and God. But God doesn't change the world." changes. Sure. Nora, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Joseph. Uh, you'll love this one, Father. A Protestant told me that the Catholic Church was an invention of the Roman government. Is this true, and how can I respond? <laughs> well, all you got to do is look at the feast of St. Justin Martyr we talked about today. Yes. The Roman government executed uh, Ju Justin Martyr. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Roman government basically executed millions of martyrs. Now, they might say that actually the Catholic Church was founded by Constantine, which is what many people think. Mm -hmm. But Constantine merely made it uh, a lawful religion in the Roman Empire. He didn't uh, found it, obviously, because it was already in existence. And he didn't give it any particular things that it didn't have already. It wasn't he who determined the ritual or, or any of those things of the Mass. Uh -huh. It's true that in the Eastern Church, the ritual of the Mass does have a lot of things that were brought into it from the court ritual of Byzantium, of the Emperor of the East, you know, Constantinople. Uh -huh. But still, the basic structure of the Mass, obviously... Uh, owes itself more to the Passover meal and then to a particular reading of it. And even St. Paul discusses that. So, uh, no, you can't say it was invented by the Roman Empire. It's Open Line Thursday here on EWTN. Uh, if you call right now, we can probably get you on today's program at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's a question from Mac in Wisconsin, Father. Mac says, I have read in St. Faustina's diary and wanted your understanding 
where she says Jesus told her he would come to anyone in purgatory three times, quote, calling to the soul not once but three times before he would cast judgment. In other words, our brothers and sisters who currently deny Jesus have three chances to deny Jesus, like it's mirrored in when Peter denied three times. Am I understanding this properly? Is there hope that Jesus reveals and only the really hard of heart can deny him? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know anything about the diaries of Faustina. Okay, okay. However, purgatory is not about people who are giving given a chance to be saved. Uh, I think what she may be referring to is limo of the just. Uh, okay. Because once you're in purgatory, you're going to heaven. There's mm -hmm. no question. Mm -hmm. And you can't merit once you go to purgatory. So you can't change your mind once you go to purgatory. Mm -hmm. And so uh, purgatory, remember, has to do with the temporal punishment due to venial or mortal sin while on earth, but there's no further meriting or demeriting in purgatory. It's all passive purgation. Okay. So she, it, they couldn't make acts either. Mm. So I must say I don't know much about the diaries of Faustina. Okay. So. Very good. While we're on the subject of purgatory, Angela says, where is purgatory in the Bible? And how do I better explain purgatory to my Protestant friend? Well, there's two places. The first is where it's stated he shall not get out until he pays the last penny mm -hmm. of the person who's taken to court. Uh, the less obvious place is it wouldn't make any sense to offer sacrifices or masses for the dead if there were no purgatory because that you can't help them anymore. Mm. They're either in heaven or in hell. Mm -hmm. And yet it's stated that the most obvious sense is when Judas Maccabeus, remember, offers the sacrifices for the people killed in the battle, whom they discover had pagan amulets under their armor. Mm -hmm. And it's stated there as a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. Well, if there's only heaven and hell, praying for the dead isn't going to do either one of them any good because they're all done. Yeah, know? yeah. So that's the less obvious answer. Okay. Yeah. All right, very good. Thank you for that uh, question, and that was from Angela. Here is Susan now, back live to the phones in Melbourne, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hello, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is about uh, Joan of Arc. I think her feast day is May 30th, but it doesn't... I wondered it's if that's still on the calendar. No, it's not. It's not. And why not? Well, I have a feeling. I don't really know. I wasn't sure it was always on the universal calendar. But remember, Joan of Arc was canonized in the 30s. And it was an attempt to encourage the, the French in the face of Nazism. And, other, and, and secularism to uh, be more devoutly religious. So it really is a feast that I would think many people, I'm not saying I do this, but many people think is more um, oriented to the kingdom, you know, the country of France than to the whole church as a, a, whole, a universal church as a whole. 
Okay. What's, what's your second question? Okay. Uh, the second question is, is the penitential rite required at every Mass? Uh, because I noticed on Palm Sunday, I'm a lector, and when I was lector one on Palm Sunday, people were kicking me under the pew, get up there, get up there, because there was, I don't think there was a penitential rite. No, and that's because of the ritual of Palm Sunday, because the passion is looked, and, and also the, uh, yeah, the passion is looked upon as substituting for the penitential rite. Yeah. There you go, Susan. Thanks so much. I'm glad we could answer both those questions here on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. Here's a, a question now from Mike. How much responsibility should we give to God for our lives, and how much responsibility do we have? Oh, you mean as far as your good and evil is concerned? You got it all, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Walk the line. Walk the line. Yes. God gives you the gifts if you're willing to be open to them. Mm -hmm. But you have to be open to them, and that's your decision of will. Sure. Uh, It's not his. Yeah. Now, of course, he has to support you in that, because all initiative and all salvation comes from God. Everything begins from God to begin with. But part of that was he gave you a free will so that you'd be responsible as a person for realizing your own destiny. Uh, John Paul II calls this, uh, in Adam and Eve's case, becoming partners with the absolute, which is an interesting way of putting it. Mm, yeah. But um, no, no, when it comes to goodness or sin, uh, well, you could say in a way God is responsible for the goodness because it's always by his initiative, mm-hmm. and he has to support you in good acts. But when it comes to wickedness, that's you. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and the reason is because every meritorious act on our part has two people that act. God acts and we act. That's why it's called cooperating grace, mm. because we cooperate with the grace of the Holy Spirit inspiring us. And at the end, uh, when we, the reward is given, God rewards his own acts by absolute justice. But ours, he does so by proportionate justice. So in other words, uh, we've done what we're able to do, our part. But that's not a quid pro quo. It isn't like a strict justice. Um, so in a sense, you know, the good acts, God is mostly responsible for as far as giving us the gifts and supporting us. But we still have our little part to play, and that's why in my house there are many mansions, Mm. depending on how deeply our cooperation of will is. Okay. Mike, thanks so much uh, for your question. It is uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Glad you're with us today. Don't forget tomorrow night on EWTN News In-Depth at 8 p.m. Eastern, Monse Alvarado speaks with the Abbess of Mary, Queen of Apostles in Missouri. You may have heard about this as thousands flock to see the remains of their foundress. Also, U.S. bishops weigh in on gun laws after mass shootings. Always a fascinating program, EWTN News in Depth with your host, Monse Alvarado. That's tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Here's a question now, Father, from Dwayne, who says, how can we know that sola scriptura is not right? Well, that's a strange way of asking. Kind of, yeah, it is. 
um, gosh, uh, because among other things, there's first of all, the apostles are told to consult the apostles, and secondly, because uh, the scriptures didn't fall out of heaven, you know, right. Uh, and the way some of the Protestants talk, you think you had the King James Version of the Bible that just fell out of heaven with no prior uh, relationship to the church at all. Uh, so for a thousand years, the Catholic Church used the Latin Bible, but the King James Version, like I say, just sort of fell out of heaven. <laughs> yeah. And remember, who determines what's in, what came first? Tradition as oral or tradition as written? Tradition as oral came first. And the word of God as oral is what we call tradition. In other words, the preaching of the apostles came first. And then you have it written down to preserve it or to express what's really important in it, and that's the word of God is written. Now, it's true that scripture has a special inspiration about it so that the sacred author's intention will be preserved. But who decided that the Gospel of Thomas was not inspired and that the Gospel of John is? It was the church that decided that. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy. This is a quite thing that's very easy to, uh, to answer because, the, like I say, the scriptures came after tradition. And so both are absolutely equally important. So you have, according to the Vatican Council, two sources of the Word of God. The first is oral, the second is written. Which is more important? Well, they debated this in the Council of Trent. They debated this in Vatican I. They debated this in Vatican II. And the answer has always been they're both equally important. You can't play off one against the other. Okay. So we need tradition as much as we need scripture. And not everything in tradition is found in scripture. Okay. And we thank you so much uh, for your call. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN. What a great question this is, Father. This is from Tara, who says, What is the proper way to pray? Well, <laughs> I think Teresa of Avila summed it up best when she said that prayer was a loving conversation among friends. Mm, beautiful. The method that you use, it, it can be the rosary, it can be the Divine Mercy Chaplet, it can be the Stations of the Cross, it can be silent adoration of the Eucharist, Mass is a method of prayer. The method that you use has to do with both the situation and the personal... Um, uh, disposition of the person praying. So for some people, uh, the rosary is not a good way. They don't relate to repetitious prayer, whereas for most of the church, the rosary has been a highly recommended method of prayer. And there are several reasons for that. I could go into that at rather great length. Um, but you have to find whatever expression fit your personality and also then it should lead to a loving conversation among friends or support it. Okay. 
Tara, thank you so much uh, for your question. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian here on EWTN. Uh, Billy has an interesting one. He says, why in the book of Hebrews is there a need for a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins? Well, the uh, epistle of the Hebrews was St. Whoever wrote it, I think it was St. Paul, but many people reject that because the style is so different than the letters. Mm. Um, They think it was an unknown author. But it was written precisely for the Jews to try to relate the sacrifices of the old law, and especially Yom Kippur, Mm -hmm. to Christ. And Christ is the temple, you know, and, and the... The sacrifice for sin being related to Christ's sacrifice. Uh, The blood sacrifice is necessary because actually the death of the victim is necessary. And um, this relates to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Although now we don't sacrifice, as Hebrews is very clear, uh, bulls and goats. What we sacrifice is a Christ's body, but also our own wills uh, to uh, be obedient again to God, whom Adam disobeyed unlovingly. Mm. And uh, so the the whole context of the epistle of the Hebrews is an attempt to relate the Yom Kippur ritual, which was the sacrifice for sin, to the sacrifice of Christ. Very good. It's Open Line Friday, uh, Thursday, with Father Brian here on EWTN Radio. Interesting question now, Father, from Sean. Sean says, when Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom, is it possible that he is making a statement about his own godliness? Well, I don't think I understand the question. I didn't either. I didn't either. (laughs) Frankly. Uh If you mean that he's expressing his ability to forgive sins and be head of the church, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I guess, but I don't know what you mean by how the keys as such relate to Christ's own godliness, except in the fact that Peter's being given the ability to act in the name of God in certain cases. Okay. Very good. Here's one now from uh, Murph who says, How do I approach someone who is not Catholic to come to Mass? They have a history of receiving communion at Catholic churches. So uh, what do you say to somebody in that in that situation? Uh, they're not Catholic and they're going to communion? Yeah. Uh, oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I uh, don't think it's a good idea. Um I know that uh, Dr. David Andrews has said uh, several times that that's actually rather dangerous, or you know, well, it can be. Uh, yeah, because they don't have a right to go to communion. Yeah. Um, perhaps you could emphasize to them that that's the culmination of faith in our church, and they need to investigate other things before they do that. Mm, okay. Very good. Here's one now from Haley. How do I respond to someone who claims Marian apparitions are demonic apparitions because demons can appear as creatures of light? How do you respond to that person? Well, yeah, but as soon as the demon appears as creature of light, 
if you mention the name of Christ or you mention the reaction is horrible. Mm. Uh, especially we do it in Latin, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the way you're sure that it's not just psychological problems. Sure. But um, Mary, uh, a, a person who appears and does nothing but recommend prayer and good works, can't possibly be an agent of the devil. Okay. Very good. And uh, Carla is watching us on YouTube this afternoon, Father. Carla says, I have a question about original sin. The Catholic Church holds that only Jesus and Mary don't have original sin because it is transmitted through the father and child. Is this true? Uh, no, I wouldn't. No, uh-uh, no. The father business, uh, it's translated transferred by the seed it's true but the seed has to be transferred in the mother the act of translation of the seed uh as for jesus of course he doesn't have original sin mm. because he's not a human person he's only a divine person okay very good and mary doesn't have it because god just miraculously bound it from happening Okay. And it's in light of her future. She does have to participate or be a member of the church, which was always the theological difficulty, which for Middle Ages people like Thomas Aquinas meant she at least had to have some experience of sin in order to be freed from it, but she was freed from it instantaneously in the womb of her mother. Well, that's not the position the church took. Following Scotus, Pius IX said that what happened was, in light of her future participation in the cross, that God miraculously kept sin from arriving at her body. And that's the origin of the famous Marian infant, Totropocra S. Maria. You're all, be all beautiful, Mary. Ah, beautiful. All right, and we thank you very much uh, for that uh, question. Uh, Carla, glad you're watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Father Milady, if you would leave us with your blessing, please. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Mar Brian Milady, thank you so much for all that you do for EWTN, and uh, we're glad that you're coming to the EWTN campus in a couple of weeks. Look forward to seeing you then. Okay. Thanks a lot, Tom. And we thank everybody for tuning in to Open Line Thursday. Tomorrow it's going to be our Vice President for Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, right here at the microphone. On behalf of everybody here at EWTN, I'm Tom Price. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Open Line. God bless. Mm -hmm.